Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Cohen, and on today's episode, I have Alan Savory. Alan is one of the founders of the Savory Institute. He is also the man who gave the famous TED Talk on how to fight man-made deserts playing such a role in climate change. In the 1960s, he made a significant breakthrough in understanding what was causing the degradation of the world's grassland ecosystems and has worked on six continents to develop sustainable solutions. Alan, thank you so much for coming on to an episode today. Well, thank you for having me, Gary. So, you know, I think if anyone's ever watched your TED Talk, they've they must have been moved because I was so moved when I saw that so many years ago. Um, and also, I, I grew up in South Africa and coming from Africa, I mean, your story with elephants was just so moving. Um, you know, you want to see the land keep healthy. So I'm so glad I actually get to speak to you today to find out even more. Um, I guess my first question for you then is, in your TED Talk, that mistake you talked about with the elephants, was that your tipping point? Was that your turning point? That wasn't the, no, that wasn't the aha moment or the tipping point. It was just uh, added to my determination. Uh, this problem is, is centuries old. It's thousands of years old that the world's deserts, man-made deserts, began forming. It frustrated me that nobody had ever been able to solve it. And I, I became very determined when I saw how bad it was in Senegal in 1960 and determined not to see my own country go that way. And I, I've often told people uh, something I wouldn't admit when I was a younger man, because men don't cry, as we know. Uh, <laughs> but I was the, a real turning moment was when I was sitting on the banks of the Amzangwani River in Zimbabwe, or Rhodesia as we were, and the river came down in flood, muddy water, trees tumbling over going down uh, into the water, dead donkeys and things. And, and I just began crying. Uh, that was my country. That was the future of, of my country. Uh, it, that was more dangerous than any war, anything else could ever be, because um, soldiers change civilizations, farmers destroy them. And uh, I could see no point in being in the army uh, defending politics that I didn't believe in and politicians I didn't believe in. And I, I literally just made a pledge to myself, I am going to devote my life to finding a solution, uh, no matter what it takes. Uh, even if it means dying, I'm, I'm going to solve this damn problem. And then the big mistake I made with the elephants, that, that just fortified it and made me more determined. Okay. Yeah. So the elephants situation, did that come after this this episode you're talking about with the flooding? Yeah, as I recall it, uh, yes, it was about the same time they were happening. Uh, I was writing the reports. We hadn't started killing the elephants yet. So the killing of the elephants followed my reports. So that Mzingwani experience was at the time I was doing the research. So we hadn't yet got the experience of what a blunder that was. And I, I say it was my blunder which it was, but actually all scientists share it, and I'm the one that learned from it. Because to this day, now, over half a century later, uh, that is still the solution of choice of ecologists. And I cannot believe 
that they're collectively so stupid and cannot learn from my lesson. So for people listening who may have not seen your TED talk, what, what exactly is the problem that um, you, got, you discovered when it came to herding animals and um, topsoil and, and keeping land not turning into deserts? Well, let, let me try and link it. You know, we're indulging in hindsight now, and it's easy to explain in hindsight. But at the time, bear in mind that for 10,000 years, many brilliant minds had tried to deal with this problem and we couldn't solve it. The reason was, and it's connected to the mistake with the with the elephants, is that the belief of society, and thus the belief of universities, institutions, because they, they carry forward and reflect the beliefs of society, has always been, always been, and still is, that if there's damage to land, it's too many animals. And there are thousands of PhD dissertations, peer-reviewed papers that don't even question that. There's not one I've ever found that even defines overgrazing. It is just assumed overgrazing causes desertification and overgrazing equals too many animals. And there's not a single bit of research that's ever proven that. So this deep belief has just assumed scientific validity, right? And I was trained like that. So when I saw this terrible damage occurring in areas we were creating as national parks, and we had no livestock to blame, the logical thing, which I did, and ecologists still do, is to blame too many elephants, too many buffalo, too many, you know, animals. So I did the research and proved there were too many. Now that's easy because we, all of us scientists do that. We do research and very easily establish and prove what we believe. If what we, the data we come up with conflicts with our deep beliefs, we discard the data. And there are many instances of that. So I didn't discard the data. I just fitted the beliefs and the data and recommended that we would have to kill. And nobody had ever talked about killing animals on that scale in national parks or sanctuaries. And so it, it was political dynamite. And I said, we're going to have to kill thousands of these animals to bring their level down to the carrying capacity of the land, which is still a belief of ecologists and range scientists. Well, we didn't know that that was all BS. There's no science behind that. So we, we checked my work. We had a committee do it. Some very good people. They went through it thoroughly. They agreed with me. We went ahead and government then shot over 40,000 elephants. Now, the problem got worse, not better. So I learned from that and said, all right, I've made a terrible blunder. We all have. Now, what is going on? And we never could have solved this problem entirely on one continent. So I got most of the problem solved in Africa, but not completely. And then, thankfully, I was forced into exile politically because I was opposing the racism of our government uh, in parliament. And uh, that forced me to come to America. And in America, I was able to pick up other clues. Uh, the main one being that nowhere in Africa had I ever found land with no animals on it. Everywhere in Africa, there are animals. 
So we couldn't pick up that resting the land or conservation was the biggest single cause, bigger even than overgrazing of plants. Until I got to America and was able to visit some national parks, like the one I showed in the TED Talk, where all animals have been removed. There's no big population of bison or deer or anything. All livestock have been removed for nearly a 100 years. And frankly, the deep gulling, the bare ground, the desertification is worse than almost anything in Africa. So when that's happening in national parks in the United States, that again was a big aha moment for me. Now here I found scientists are just blind to it because it doesn't fit their beliefs. So they just say, well, it, the land got so bad it can't recover. That's dry land. That's natural. And frankly, in America, people have just given up. Hmm. Nothing new is being tried. And you can travel thousands of miles across Southern California, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, etc., all these states, and just see hopelessly overrested land turning to desert. Yes. And that, that sounds crazy It's because it goes against all these deep beliefs that have become science. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it, it sounds like that is the concept in agriculture that, no, um, we've got too, too many animals disturbing the topsoil um, and the, the land is drying, so we need to let it. So is that what the concept of resting the land is? Like take, take the activity, the, the sort of the animal activity off the land and we think that it should allow the land to recover. Is that the, been some yes, of the thinking? Don't, don't disturb it. So, you know, as I've tried to explain often, we are a tool-using animal. So if we're going to uh, address desertification or climate change or do anything, in your life or my life, we, you and I, and all the people listening, cannot even drink water unless they go to a river and drink with their mouths and their hands. The only other way they can drink water today, all humans, is to use technology. A cup, a tap, a pipe, a pump, a dam, something. Do you see? So we cannot even drink water without technology. Nothing you and I do in our lives can we do uh, managing our environment without a tool. Now, the belief is that there are thousands of tools and options. That, again, is a belief. And so I was heavily criticized by some academics in the TED Talk when I said, we have only one option left to mankind, to do the unthinkable and use livestock. All right? Now, I was heavily criticized for that by uh, prestigious academics who said, ridiculous, how can any scientist say there's only one option? There are always many options. No, there are not. All right? They think there are many options because they're thinking of technology being able to do everything, that, that there's lots and lots of options. But if you break it down to tools that we use and you are going to try to prevent desertification, the first thing you've got to do is see why is desertification occurring, all right? Now, it occurs not in areas of perennial humidity. So east and west coast of America, humid areas, tropical jungles, oceans, lakes, etc. none of that desertifies because there's humidity throughout the year. It doesn't matter whether there's 10 inches of rain or 100 inches of rain. The amount of rain doesn't matter. 
What matters is every day of the year, it is pretty humid. Right? There aren't long periods without humidity. Now, if we look at most of America, most of the world, two-thirds of the world's land, it's not like that. You get wet periods, two, three, four months of maybe anything from one month or half a month to six months of wet rain humidity. Then you get anything from uh, two or three or four to five, eight months of dryness, and things get dry and drier. That is where desertification occurs. Right now, it occurs there because the rainfall that people are receiving becomes less effective. And that happens because you get too much of the soil between the plants bare. And so the rain, instead of falling, soaking into the soil, and only leaving the soil by passing through plants back to the atmosphere, or flowing through the soil to rivers and wetlands, which is effective rainfall, when there's a lot of bare ground, what happens is it starts to fall and flow across the surface, giving you floods and flash flooding and mud and erosion into the rivers. And the water that does soak into the soil doesn't all leave through plants. Most of it leaves through evaporation out of the bare soil surface. So you start to get droughts and floods and poverty and, and all of these things. That is desertification. So the issue is what causes billions of acres like most of the United States, to have a very high percentage of bare ground between the plants. So as we sit here talking, you can go almost anywhere in Nevada, New Mexico, for example. You can drop by parachute, if you like, randomly anywhere. And I will guarantee you that 50 to 90% of the ground between the plants is bare. I can guarantee it. It's over billions of acres of the United States. Right now, what causes that? And only two things in the world cause it. No other cause. It's not caused by droughts or climate change, anything else. It's caused by fire. If you burn the vegetation, it exposes the soil. It's common sense 101. Okay, so fire is one cause. And the only other cause is too few large grazing animals wandering around, overgrazing plants while they're over-resting the land. And that's it. And those two things, fire and too few animals over-grazing plants while they're over-resting the land, are standard practices worldwide. And so... And now it, you know why there's global desertification. Yeah. So now if you're going to correct that with tools, how are you going to correct it? So we, we say, all right, we've got a billion dollars to put into reversing the desertification of the United States, we've got to somehow use a tool. Now, all of our creativity can't do anything, can't even drink water until we pick up a tool. All of the money in the world, you can have a billion dollars and you can't even drink water unless you use technology. You can have all the labor in the world and you can't do anything until you use a tool, right? So what tools do we have? We've got technology, machines, chemicals, all the technology imaginable, uh, cell phones, computers, technology. And we had that. It was the first tool that humans had. We had sticks and stones. It was our first technology. We could chip the stones. We could sharpen the sticks. 
but we couldn't change our environment. All right? Now, about a million years ago, we got a second tool. That was fire. Now, the moment we got fire, we began the desertification of the world. We began it by exposing soil more frequently than nature had done. And we could melt the stones and go into the copper, the bronze, the iron age, and use the computers we're using today. Everything in the room you stand in, every bit of clothing you've got on you, was made possible by fire. There's nothing around you or on you that we could have made without fire. All right, so for 99% of human existence, we had two tools, technology and fire. Neither of those could have prevented global desertification. So now you see why, as I heard one speaker say, if you watched us from space, our planet from space, over the last 20, 30, 50,000 years, you would have described humans as a desert-making species. Yeah, that makes That's sense. Right. So we're going to correct it. We cannot correct it with any technology even imaginable because it can't replace large animals, not overgrazing plants, keeping biological decay going, laying litter, etc. All right? Fire can't because it causes a problem. Now, what else is available to scientists? Nobel laureates, everybody. The only other thing that's available now is conservation, rest. The idea of using rest as a tool, we call it conservation. So we'll preserve it. We'll let nature recover. Now, that's a wonderful tool for oceans, rivers, lakes, humid environments. They do recover. That's why when we find the old ruins of past civilizations in those environments, we find them under jungle, under forest that's recovered. Now, if we go look at the other two-thirds of the world, or the two-thirds of the world that's brittle environment, seasonal humidity, if we look at the old civilizations that failed, we don't find them under recovered savannas, recovered grasslands. We find them under desert sands. Why? Because conservation or resting the environment causes desertification. So with our third tool then, conservation or resting the environment, causes it, fire causes it, technology cannot solve it. That's the end of the main toolbox of the humans. There's only one other possibility now left to humans in our conventional management and teachings of all the universities of the world, and that is to use a combination of technology, spade, plow, machine, whatever, and plant trees, shrubs, or grass. And now the human toolbox is empty. So, yeah, because so, it, it sounds like, um, is, is it that, because, I mean, man-made deserts are only getting more and bigger. I'm guessing it's, it's, it's um, I'm just thinking of the Sahara and even in the Karoo in Africa, um, and I'm guessing the same is in the States. Uh, so is the current sort of solution that they're just trying to manage how fast it's happening, that they it's going to just keep taking more land? Not that, like what it sounds like you're doing is you're going, you're like going the salmon up the stream. You're going straight into it and trying to push it back. Well, we, we're going into regenerating those former grasslands, savannas, dry deciduous forests, all the seasonal rainfall 
environments that are turning to man-made desert. We're just reversing that by using livestock in greatly increased numbers and what I described in the TED Talk, the holistic planned grazing process. Mm. And that combination, livestock and that planning process, absolutely, you can guarantee it, I will stake my life on it. We've never had a single failure yet. That begins to reverse desertification. So, now, the, the only other thing we could do to improve on that is for some scientists now to develop a better process. So, we, you know, the process I developed, I copied about 300 years of military planning experience. I just took their technique and copied it to uh, adapt it to a biological situation. It worked because it had 300 years experience behind it. And maybe somebody now can improve that process. But we know that works and using livestock. Yeah, because I'm always blown away, you know, I'm going to try to put it on the YouTube video, the before and after photos. And the classic one is seen on some of the, like you'll have one farmer who's following your method and technique and a farmer who isn't, and there's a fence in between the two fields. And the one side is just bare. There's nothing. It's, it is a desert. And the other side is just lush and has trees and long grass and a flowing river. And I'm just blown away how more people don't, when they see that, just think, yeah, that it, that's working. Why don't we now just implement that? Like, what what is the problem there that the other the farmer problem, doesn't follow okay. that? The problem there, Gary, and it, it, it was another lesson I had to learn the hard way, um, is that that's offensive. Um, that is showing how clever you are and how stupid your neighbor is. Uh, that is offensive. And so I personally use very few of those contrasts. Okay. They're offensive and they put people off and people cannot. I was with the, uh, when Bob Rodale was still alive, um, I took our staff we had at the time to their um, Rodale Center and they, we talked about it because they believed in demonstration farms, establishing them around the country. And I said to Bob, I said, I don't believe in demonstration farms. Those are offensive. I think you've got to make the boundary soft psychologically. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, um, I think you're blocking people from around you. And they said, oh, no, no, we're not. Our demonstration farms work. And I said, all right, we're on yours here. How long has this been going? And they said 70 years. And it's a, it's a lovely example of what can be done with organic or sustainable uh, cropping practices. And I said, I want to visit the nearest farmer practicing what you're doing. Who is it and how far? And he and his staff discussed it for a bit and looked sheepish. They named the farm and I said, how far? And they said, 110 miles. I said, that's exactly my point. You're blocking people around you because that's offensive. You have to be far enough away. When you or I learn something new from somebody, all right, and then have to go home, it's uh, because of our egos, it's hard to say, I've just learned this from Gary. It's better for me and my ego to give it a twist, a new name of my own, and say, look what I've just discovered. But I have to be far enough away from you to do that. So I don't like using contrast photos. I actually often use a no-contrast picture. I like that better. There's more teaching. 
So I, if I could show it on the screen now, I would. I've often put it on, on my Facebook site. And it's just a picture of desert country in New Mexico. And it's desert absolutely identical on both sides. And there's a fence down the middle. And there's no difference on the two sides. And then I explain to people, and I say, one side of this fence is everything that the world's scientists and ecologists and environmentalists want to do. It's managed by the U.S. National Park Service. It's had hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on soil conservation measures, planting plants, using technology, etc. It's got no livestock they removed nearly 100 years ago, and it's what we want to do. And I said, the other side of this fence, there's ignorance, stupidity, greed. It's Navajo Nation. They don't know any better. They're overstocking with sheep. And I said, we've had these two practices, totally different, one co totally condemned, one we want to do to the world. And I said, we've had them for 70 years. And then I asked the audience to tell me which side is which. And you cannot tell which side. The result is the same. Now, that's big learning. And you don't offend anybody except professional egos. You don't, uh, people can look at that and you can say, okay, why are they the same? And the answer is, because always the land responds to the greatest influence. And in that scene I've just described to you, on one side there's total rest or conservation. On the other side, where the Native American sheep are, there's too few animals wandering around. Very few animals because of the fear of, of overgrazing. So you've got a very low level of overgrazing of plants and a very high level of what we call partial rest. Sheep walking on the land, but no wolves, no predators, not munching, not disturbing the soil, not making, laying much litter. So both sides turning to desert. Because you got me thinking with the sheep um, talk there. I, I live <laughs> in a part of the world where there's a lot of sheep. Um, where I live on a place called the Isle of Man, and it's very humid um, with that because we've got a lot of rain. So even in that situation where the farmers have these huge um, bits of land, should they, even in that environment, would it would your method of herding the animals even closer be more efficient? For the land. Yeah, in, in that environment, that's what we call a non-brittle environment. Pretty humid, all right? Um, so you pick up dead vegetation there, dead grass leaves or dead twigs and things, um, and they'll just crumple up softly in your hand. Now, the, the rainfall in London, which is a city fairly close to you, okay, is about the same as the rainfall in Johannesburg, but they're totally different climates. Really? Okay. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't it? So you're in what we call a non-brittle environment, and there it's very forgiving. It won't turn to desert no matter what you do. All right? It's very forgiving. Now, those uh, sheep farmers there, they would be wise to read Poisson's work, the French pasture scientist who discovered what was damaging in rotational grazing. And that's all published, and my wife and I had his book republished because he was being so ignored. Um, that is extremely good. So they could practice what he called rational grazing, planned in your head or with a calendar, and you plan the moves of the animals, and you base it on the recovery period you want to give to plants. And 
it would be better if the sheep were more concentrated, but not vital. But it would be better. So that's one possibility to them. A tremendous lot of research, very, very sound work, uh, wonderful work. Now, if that's like buying a Cadillac. Now, if they want a Rolls Royce, all right, then use our planning, which is, which I adopted from Sandhurst, military planning technique that we use. And that's conveyed and in our book, my textbook and any amount of help. There's a hub now in the UK, which is close to them. There could be a hub developing in the Isle of Man. And there they will do even better because that will bring in the social factors, the other land uses and a more refined, easier way of planning. So they could use Wazan's or they could use holistic plan grazing. Both will do the job. One will do it a lot easier and better. So I've also got a question for you then because we're using animals as a tool, these big herding animals, and that's going to help heal the land. Uh, you know, Just my very brief summary. But then the world also has this debate that they don't like herding animals because they're worried that the animals are actually contributing to the climate change in various ways. Um, you know, the methane gas one is is one example that they think cows are emitting too much methane, um, which is causing a part of global warming. But now in this case, we're going to look like we could be using more cattle, more cows, but in in a more efficient way. Is it, do you how do you deal with that sort of debate when someone brings that up? There are three debates that go on that are doing great damage to mankind and really just rearranging the deck chairs. Uh, one is the methane, that if you increase uh, cattle and get them out of the feedlots, which should be illegal, frankly, they're, they're contributing to climate change very definitely in CAFOs or feedlots and so on. So that's there's the methane argument. There's some people debating and arguing how much carbon can be sequestered in grassland soils, savanna soils, over two-thirds of the world, those soils, using livestock. So people are debating that and wasting time. And then there is, of course, the vegans. And there are hundreds of celebrities putting their reputations, their popularity, their money behind the vegan movement. So let me take those three and deal with them together. Uh, so I'm going to make an assumption that is wrong, but let's do it. Let's assume that cattle and all livestock put out 10 times the methane they do. They do put out methane. You do. I do. Okay? But let's assume livestock put out 10 times as much. Let's assume that absolutely no carbon can be absorbed in the deepest soils in the world, which essentially happen to be the grassland soils. It's totally wrong, but let's assume it. So zero carbon can be uh, sequestered. Now let's assume that every human becomes vegan and starts eating beans or whatever, and we don't eat meat. All right, so we eat no meat. Now, my question to every scientist in the world is, what are you going to do about global desertification and climate change? You have no option but to greatly increase livestock and use them. So we're just wasting time while people die. It's just, to me, it's like the Royal Navy. It took 200 years 
from when it was first demonstrated by uh, Lancaster, Captain Lancaster, that giving lime juice to sailors would stop scurvy. A million sailors apparently died. That was vital to Britain, but it took 200 years to accept it. Once they'd accepted it, it took a further 70 years for the Royal Navy to accept it. I think my facts are correct on roughly those times. We are looking at the same situation. It's been 50 years that we've known about holistic plan grazing and demonstrated how to reverse desertification. There's been no opposition at all from any corporation or vested financial interest. There's only been ego opposition, academic egos, no other opposition and egos. And so if we go on and on with these debates about methane, veganism, carbon, all we're doing is, like the Royal Navy, letting millions of people die. Now, Europe, every European politician, every European person should be listening to what we're saying because of the tremendous emigration uh, to Europe from North Africa. It is changing the political face of Europe. How are politicians and the people of France, Britain, etc., going to prevent more Brexits or Trump uh, issues like we're dealing with in America unless you start dealing with this immigration? How are they going to do it? They cannot do it without livestock. Why? Because the desertification right across North Africa, up into China through Mongolia, and across to India, that's the most problematic area of the world from which most of the emigration and violence is coming. 95% of that land cannot grow crops. It can only feed people from livestock. And only livestock can stop that desertification. So the choice in Europe is listen to me or accept the change of Europe the political face of Europe with immigration. Nothing they do will stop it because the human flood is not stoppable, except by removing the cause. And and in that case there, I mean, some people will be listening thinking, but how how could I control something that's happening in another country? I guess in that case, we just have to hope that... Um, in the countries that are affected that somehow they say like your method is adopted to try and make the land more arable that there's more food sustainability because there's enough livestock and there's enough um land to to grow on is that sort of the solution that we we need here no 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 they, just think about it for a moment europe okay has a tremendous influence on the united nations united nations recently announced 17 new Sustainable Development Goals. Read those Sustainable Development Goals and you'll find almost all of them are addressing the symptoms of desertification. So I can tell you right now, Gary, and I can guarantee you that they're going to fail because they're not addressing the cause of desertification. They're addressing the poverty, the violence, the, you know, the symptoms, the floods. Mm. So it's going to get worse. Now, Europe has control of that. The universities of Europe are putting out that garbage and doing that, all right? Now, Europe is providing tremendous amount of aid through, uh, you know, deferred and British aid, Dutch aid, French aid, German aid, 
They're putting out millions of dollars of aid into Africa. That aid is doing damage in most cases because it's treating the symptoms of desertification. Same as USAID is doing. All right, they control that aid. All of that, every every bit of aid they're doing, looking at things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the control is largely Europe. It's not the Southern Hemisphere. Now, I'm saying shocking things today, but I, I appeal to you, you put this out to anybody, and I am inviting, I'm appealing, I'm pleading with some scientists somewhere in the world to tell me where I'm wrong. Nobody has in 50 years. All they do is shoot the messenger. Yeah, and you know what, exactly what you're saying there, to me, I'm just listening, makes so much sense as to deal with the cause. As you said, the, the poverty, um, the even the water issues, that especially in Africa, if you could help the land improve itself then you'll you'll be fixing a whole bunch of the symptoms that come upstream from that from the cause absolutely absolutely i gave a talk to progressive farmers in america a few months ago in kansas and in that talk which you can get and, and it's on uh, youtube as well um in that i pointed out that the whole of society and thus our institutions universities environmental organizations governments, United Nations, are blaming certain things for climate change. They're blaming livestock, they're blaming coal, and they're blaming oil. All right? We accept that. Now, let's use common sense. Livestock are going to be needed for centuries to feed people, clothe people, etc. Coal and oil are resources. They're going to be needed for centuries to produce products, aspirin, whatever. All right? No resource can cause a problem. We're not even using common sense. So they are not causing climate change. What is causing climate change with 100% certainty is management. Reductionist management of today in which the way we manage the livestock, putting them into factory feedlots, etc., based on chemistry, and marketing technology, not based on the biological sciences, or management that chooses to call coal and oil fossil fuels and burn them at a rapid rate. It is without question, without a shadow of doubt, management that is causing the problem. Now, who in the world is saying that, apart from our institute? Nobody. We're all blaming the resources. Yeah, that makes so so much sense. Again, is that you, you've you've got the substance, but it's it's the people who are making decisions about the substance. Um, in this case, like the resources, and if we just change some of those decisions, we can have a have a completely different outcome. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah. you do. Yeah, and quickly. Yeah. So some, you know, I'm I'm going to try tie this all in. So we've done a lot of ecological talking, and you know how to so. Um, a lot of people here might be listening in an apartment in New York or San Francisco or something thinking, yeah, I'm not a farmer. I don't understand how I'm going to maybe try help the situation. Would you say that consumers can help the help the situation by supporting farmers in a certain way? So, you know, the, from um, this show talks a lot about nutrition and diet and, and, and that's why I wanted to talk to you too because this is the whole chain of events. So the food that we're eating how can we get the best out of it? So I'm thinking, is it 
as a consumer, is it a good thing then that I'm supporting grass-fed beef or grass-fed animals that I buy, you know, that I buy there, buy it from those farmers? Or is it a maybe that I also need to have a dialogue with those farmers and, and make sure that they're how you know they're following certain methods to prevent their land from turning into a desert okay the consumers uh, I'm, I'm glad you summing it up this way that's, that's good the consumers are the only people who can change it politicians cannot change it universities cannot change it united nations cannot change it environmental organizations cannot change it cattlemen's organizations cannot change it no institutions can change it why? Because what we are talking about is counterintuitive. It's paradigm shifting. And if you heed the research and research of people like uh, Lord Ashby, that takes centuries before institutions can change. And they can only change when the public is demanding it. So the only people that can bring about change are the consumers, ordinary people, who most of whom are in cities today. So it's wonderful that the food movement has become involved because this is getting the knowledge into city populations. Now, when, when the, enough people in the cities are saying it has to change, it will change, and it cannot change before then. If it does, it'll be the first case in history. I cannot find a single case in history that defies the research and the historical knowledge we have, which shows that institutions that reflect public opinion cannot change ahead of public opinion. So inst uh, consumers are the vital people, and there are two things we have to change. One is the practices of the, on the land, the fishermen, the foresters, etc. Agriculture, at the moment, mainstream agriculture, is the most destructive industry ever in history, more destructive than coal, oil, or mining. Even coal and oil, being burnt at the rate they are, are not causing 75 billion tons of dead eroding soil every year, which is 20 times as much as the food we need for every human today. I mean, agriculture is the most destructive ever in history. Now, that's got to change at the policy level, which is driving it, and at the farm level. Now, the consumers and dealing with the food people and the chefs and folks that are doing wonderful work, and a lot of them are connecting with our institution, uh, and other organizations that are beginning to collaborate. And we've got hubs now on six continents of people rallying around, beginning to manage holistically. That's wonderful. Now, the change will come very quickly when policy changes, policy of governments, etc. Now, that cannot change till the public is demanding it. And the moment policy changes, we'll really seriously begin to address the future. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking here as a consumer, especially when it comes to livestock, you got to think of I'm going to just say like some of the famous burger joints, um, because they must be. I think a lot of people think, but they're demanding all this livestock, and then that leads to the feedlots, does it? So, in a way, is it that that consumers even would sort of try support a, a grass-fed burger outlet, um, and or try get the major change to maybe try use that? I don't know. Yeah, you know, when you mentioned the feedlots years ago, many years ago, 30, 40 years ago, I used to have a little newsletter that I put out. And in one of them, I wrote an article on the feedlots in America and how they were developed to market oil, not to market beef. And um, 
And shortly after that, I had a breakfast meeting with one of the biggest feedlot operators in the country, he and his wife, who were friends of mine. And uh, I asked him if he got my newsletter, and he said he did. I said, what did you think of it? He said it was bloody terrible. Um, it was totally condemning his industry. Um, and, uh, and I said, what did you do about it? He said, I wrote you a very strong letter. And I said, you know, I never, never got it. He said, I didn't send it. <laughs> and I said, why? He said, damn it, you're right. And that whole article, I just wrote about how feedlots didn't develop to market meat. People are suckers. They developed to market oil. When America produced a lot of oil and grew, couldn't market enough oil, they started to grow, produce more fertilizers, grow more grain. They produced a massive grain. They don't eat much corn. So how the hell do you get rid of the excess corn so that you can keep marketing oil? You feed it to animals. So they conned the public into believing this was tender, the best meat. Oh, bullshit. To market oil. Now we're deep into it. And people think it's normal. It should be illegal. It is so damaging to health, environment, and economy. And the terrible damage being done in places like Brazil, clearing tropical forests to plant pastures for cattle, it should be illegal. It will be, but not until the public is insisting that policies be developed holistically. Then it will become illegal. Yeah, you know, I did. I didn't know the that. That's a great story on the historical reference there with the feedlots. I, I, I wouldn't have even thought of the two points being connected there. But yeah, you know, USAID and corn too. Um, it's just that export. It's so much corn is ex exported, um, and it's you know, there's a whole other story with that too. Where I just thought, why? Um, especially in Africa, it just it's not solving the bigger issue. It just the issue just keeps compounding. One of the issues that with institutions, they cannot accept new paradigm shifting knowledge until the public shifts, which we've talked about. There's another big problem is that, and Saul in his research outlined this, <clears throat> is that no matter how wonderful the people in an organization are, what comes out of it commonly lacks common sense and humanity. Now that's endangering us uh, at the moment. That that's called a wicked problem of institutions. And the example I use in, in America is I just ask any American and say, does it make a sense, make sense for America to produce oil, to grow corn, to produce fuel? And people just laugh and say, no, that's stupid. Well, why are we doing it? Because it's supported by universities, corporations, government, all these institutions are doing what is stupid. And the public can see it's stupid, but the institutions cannot. How many scientists have protested that? Very few. Thousands of really good people, brilliant scientists, have supported that because the salaries are from institutions. And so just coming back to the consumer choices again there and how we can try help the situation is um, I, I talked about the grass-fed um, choosing, you know, maybe grass-fed um, food in that sense. But what do you think then of uh, choosing organic foods, some of these other third-party labels? Well, it, it's wonderful. And as I talk to people uh, often about organic and grass-fed, 
these are buzz, buzzwords, particularly in America now, organic food and grass-fed um, beef and so on. Now, I support these a thousand percent, but I always appeal to people to think deeper. Because if you think about it over the last 10,000 years, up until my lifetime virtually, all right, all food was organic. We hadn't got chemicals and large machinery of the oil industry and so on of today. Everything was organic and all livestock was grass fed. And that destroyed more than 20 civilizations. So do you really want organic and grass fed when it's destroyed 20 civilizations? Isn't that stupidity? Just repeating history? You have to go further, and that's why the Savory Institute and a lot of other organizations now collaborating with us have brought forward this word regenerative agriculture. Let's regenerate the soil, the communities, the economy. Now, the only way we're going to get regenerative agriculture is to address the cause of agriculture being the most destructive. That means we've got to address the reductionist management. And the moment we address the reductionist management, which is incredibly easy to do, profoundly simple to do, once the public insists on it, then when we do that, you'll find all agriculture will become regenerative. And it will be organic, and animals will be grass-fed, but it'll go deeper. You have to go into the social. Every Everything we manage, you cannot avoid it. You're managing a web of social, cultural, economic, and environmental complexity. And it's that which present-day reductionist management cannot handle. So if you look, uh, Gary, at everything we make, right? Bridges, bombs, planes, computers, chemicals, uh, solar uh, energy from from solar or from wind, everything we make, it's a success. We can put a man on the moon. So spacecraft, they're a success. Every single thing we make is not complex. By definition, they're complicated. There's nothing humans make that is complex. And there, in that area of our lives, we're seeing great success. Now, think about everything we manage. Deserts, forests, fisheries, churches, environment, religion, environment, agriculture. Everything we manage, we're running into trouble. To varying degrees, if we're honest with ourselves. That's where we're running into trouble. Now, what is the difference? Every single thing we manage is complex. Everything we make is complicated. It's complexity that we're not handling well. And that is what I accidentally discovered. I didn't set out to discover how to deal with that. I set out to try to discover what was causing desertification. Why hadn't we been able to solve that for thousands of years? In solving that, I accidentally hit the tip of a much bigger iceberg. And I wish Ted would allow me to talk about that. If Ted let me talk about that, wow, we'd have another talk going to five million people. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, I, as you, I love that because I'm going to use this as the as the the finale now for our interview because it is coming like culminating to the point as you said that 
we can put a man on the moon um thinking of that recent elon musk you know that was just incredible and it was very complicated all the science that went into it but it was just we had one one goal there but trying to do manage multiple systems isn't working out and you know i think of brexit brexit and the and the sort of um the trouble that politicians are having to understand so many moving parts there's just no human ca- who can understand that it's just there's too much that get you knock out one thing down here and it just it creates a tsunami down there you know like the butterfly that creates uh, that saying flaps its wings so it's like this situation exactly what you're talking about um if you want to go deeper into some of that i put a blog uh, in my Alan Savory Uncensored blog that I have. I, I put a blog yesterday on good governance and why no country in the world is well governed today and how it could be. So uh, it's a long blog, but it's uh, it's holistic management taken to the level of governance. I've talked mostly of my own country, Zimbabwe, because uh, I don't want to be presumptuous and talk about the others. But if people read it, they'll see it applies to any country, frankly. So... um. This is usually the time when I ask, uh, are there any particular links or resources that people could still follow you or find out more about you that you'd like to share? Yeah, please. Don't have them just go to me. If they go to uh, global, that's the site of the Savory Institute. And they're very capable, much younger people. I'm 83 in a, next month. I'm an old thought and need to get out of the way. Young people are taking over, and they're very, very capable and wonderful what they're doing. They're, their headquarters is in Boulder, and they've got six uh, hubs on six continents now. That's where people need to go, all right? And if people want to follow just what I'm uh, saying, they can go to my public figure Facebook site or my blog. Yeah. Okay, perfect. And I'll link to all of those in the show notes for anyone listening so they can easily find that. Uh, I can send you links too. If you Just email me what you have and I'll make sure they're correct. Perfect. Well, Alan, I just want to say thank you again for sharing all your knowledge. You know, I've tried to condense, what, 50 years worth of knowledge into the 60 minutes there for people to try get an idea of the picture. But I liked it that we were able to paint the picture of what the problem is, what some of the you know the solutions are, um, where we're currently going wrong. But even just not the panic of thinking it's it's only going to go bad. Um, right now, even consumers can start doing stuff. So I just want to say thank you so much for sharing that information. Well, thank you, Gary. Thank you.